Well, good morning again. We're going to go ahead and get started. Welcome back to Community Church. It's always a blessing to have you here to worship with you, to see your face, to see the smiles, hear the laughter, uh, all of that. It's, it's just beautiful. I love what the Lord is doing here. Uh, but this morning, we're going to continue on in Luke chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be covering verses 20 through 44 in Luke chapter 20. So all but the last three verses in this chapter, we're going to save those for next week because I think they actually tie in a little bit better with the start of chapter 21. Um, so we'll save those for next week and we'll cover verses 45 through 47 of chapter 20 next week, Lord willing. But last week, just as we watched the chief priests, scribes, the elders, all begin to question the authority of Christ uh, back at the beginning of this chapter, you'll remember. As we now move through the remainder of this chapter, we're going to see Christ further questioned here by the Pharisees, the scribes, a group called the Herodians, and the Sadducees, and they're going to begin to question him on different levels. So they've questioned his authority. Now we're going to see them question his character and even his doctrine or his theology. So more questions are coming. And we'll stop right here and pray again quickly, and then we'll get into the, the message. Father, thank you again for this beautiful morning you've given to us. Thank you for the word that's before us, your Holy Spirit that is within us. And I pray that you would guide us into all truth this morning as we seek to know you more, as we seek to know your word better. Lord, sink it deep into our hearts. Uh, that's my prayer this morning as we look into your word, that we could connect with you on a spiritual level and a spiritual understanding, maybe that we haven't had before. So convict our hearts, Lord, as we look into your word this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. All right, so there's several groups, again, that are coming before Christ to question him. Maybe you've wondered, who are all these people? There's a, a lot of different groups, right? I mentioned the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Herodians, elders. Who are these people? So I wanted to take just a minute here briefly at the outset of the message to sort of, I don't get a better understanding of these people. I think it will help us as we move through the text. The chief priests, uh, they were priests that were responsible for the day-to-day -day operations in the temple. They were high-ranking, but they were still subordinate to the high priest. Okay, The chief priests were underneath the high priest, and we see that in Matthew 26, 3 through 4. But the high priest was actually the one who was responsible for mediating between God and man by entering the Holy of Holies one time a year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, that was his job, okay? So the office of the high priest and the role of the high priest go all the way back to Aaron and his sons, all the way back to Exodus 28, Exodus 31, and so on. But we don't actually see that term high priest until you get over to Numbers. We see it first in Numbers 35, 25. But of course, with New Testament revelation, living on this side of the cross, we also understand that the high priest, the role and the purpose, the responsibility of the high priest finds its complete fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that, okay? The, Christ is our great high priest. He is the one who mediates between God and man according to the new covenant. That's Hebrews 4.14 and Hebrews 9.15, among other places. So that's the chief priests and the high priests. The scribes, they began their ministry way back in the time of Ezra. That's when they really kind of 
uh, established, I guess, their role. And this was upon Israel's return from Babylonian captivity. There was a great need for them to understand the law. They needed to gain an understanding of God's law. And so the scribes back then were literally people who could write. That's what that meant. And so their job was to write down God's law, but it was actually much broader than that. They were also teachers. They were interpreters of the law. We see that in Ezra chapter 7, verse 6. In fact, these guys would meticulously count every letter of the Torah just to make sure that their interpretation or their transcription was exact every time. So they were very meticulous in the way that they transcribed God's law. The elders... These guys, they were a judicial governing body during this time. Uh, they would settle disputes. We see in Exodus 18 where you know, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, he would instruct him to go select some able men who fear God. They're to be men of truth. They should hate covetousness. And then go ahead and place them as rulers over various sized people groups that they may judge the affairs of men, so to speak. Okay, so that's basically the function of the elders here in first century Judaism. Their function was to settle disputes. Some of them might have even sat on the Sanhedrin, which would have been equivalent to our Supreme Court. The Jewish Supreme Court was the Sanhedrin. Uh, and so these guys had taken their command from Deuteronomy 16 to appoint judges and officers. This was the role of the elder then. Now we come to the Pharisees. They're a religious sect. These guys would have been on the conservative side of the aisle, politically, if you want to say it like that. The word Pharisee means separated. These guys helped in the temple, but they believed not only in the written law, they also believed in what they called the oral law, and they held them to the same standard. So God's written law and the oral law, no difference in their, in their mind. It was all the same. And so what this led to, obviously, was legalism. Now we can have oral law that's passed down through time and the Ten Commandments become more than 600. And so they had a really uh, terrible misunderstanding of that. However, they did believe in the afterlife. They believed in the supernatural. And now uh, we come to the Sadducees. They were on the other side of the aisle. They were the liberal religious sect during this time. They did not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture at all. So whether written or oral, it was not inerrant in their opinion. They also helped in the temple. Many of them did sit on the ruling council of the Sanhedrin. Most of them were wealthy people. They did not believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. And so one of the things you could say about the Sadducees is that religion and politics, it mixed well with them. Okay, so very... Um, liberal in their ideology and in their theology, I would take it a step further and say that the liberal sort of what we now call woke theology or ideology that we see today really has a direct line back to the Sadducees. I think you can see that pretty clearly. And so the truth is you can't really with any seriousness whatsoever call churches today who pervert the scriptures, who don't believe in their inerrancy. There's no way you can honestly call them Christian. Okay, no more than you could have called this group of Sadducees lovers of God. They were not. Okay, as far as we can tell from Scripture, there was not even one account of a Sadducee ever coming to Christ. That doesn't mean that it didn't happen. We just don't have an account of that. We do see Pharisees coming to Christ. We know Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He came to Christ. We also see that there were others who came to Christ, uh, other Pharisees, I should say, in Acts chapter 3 and 4. And then the Pharisees, after Christ 
after his crucifixion, they pretty well stopped their persecution of Christians, but the Sadducees continued on in their persecution. There's another group that we won't see in our text in Luke, but we do pick it up in Matthew. This group is called the Herodians. Uh, now, these guys were just purely political, okay? They didn't have any religion, whatever. They were just political, and they came from the line of the Herods. That's why they were called the Herodians. Um, and so, the, of course, the Herods were the Roman rulers over Israel during the time of Christ. They did not agree with either religious sect, the Pharisees or the Sadducees, at all, uh, except for the fact that they all wanted to kill Christ. This is where they could come together. And so now, clearly, religion during this time, and now even outside politics, were beginning to mix, and they were beginning to converge upon Christ. And so with that background in mind, uh, the, the ancient world was clearly beginning to unite in their effort to rid the world of Christ. And so in our passage today, we see the questioning of Christ continue, okay? But it's going to continue from this fake, ill-intentioned group of people. As John Corson put it, he said, after inspecting Christ's authority, the Jews will now question his integrity. And that's right. But not only that, as I mentioned earlier, they're also going to go on to take it a step further and question his doctrine. They're going to question the theology of Christ. And ultimately, we're going to see the wisdom and authority of Christ prevail here as it always does and utterly silence all of the questions of the ruling class of his day. So let's read it. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 20, says this. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and he said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Verse 26. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. And then some of the Sadducees, who deny that there is a resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies... Having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. Here's the question. And the first took a wife and he died without children. The second took her as wife and he died childless. Then the third took her and in like manner, the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection... Whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as a wife. Verse 34. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore. For they're equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Verse 37. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage, that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you've spoken well. 
But after that, they dared not question him anymore. Verse 41. And he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. Therefore, if David calls him Lord, how can he then also be son rather? So very interesting. A lot of questions. We'll get to it. But if you'd like to do a comparison study, then you can find that in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 46 and Mark 12, 37 or 13 through 37. But the questioning begins here with the group called the Pharisees, and they ask him about taxes. But as you noticed already, they only ask him after they've already plotted and set a trap for him. Verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Now, in verse 19, last week, we were told that the chief priests and the scribes actually made an effort to lay hands on him. That's what they sought to do. And here in verse 20, we're told that they watched him. Okay, so right away, we see the trap that was being set for Christ. They needed Jesus to break the law. That was the entire plan, okay, so that they could deliver him up to Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea at the time. And of course, he served under Caesar Tiberius. So as you're reading through this, don't get the Caesars confused. Caesar Augustus was Caesar at the time of Christ's birth, Luke 2, but now it's Caesar Tiberius. And both Mark and Matthew tell us that the Pharisees also sent along with this group the Herodians that I mentioned to you earlier. Okay, so that, that's why I wanted to tell you about them, because all of these people were now in cahoots against Christ, converging on him uh, and trying to trip him up and trap him in his own words. And so, again, uh, religion and politics, when they're mixed together, make a very good trap. It's something else to keep in mind when you think about this in terms of scripture and religion and politics mixing. We see it here in the first century. Don't think that the Antichrist doesn't know about this as well, right? Verse 21. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God and truth. Yeah, so already we can see the disingenuous nature here of their question. Listen to Psalm 5, 9. It says, For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. So here's the deal. Here's what we're learning. Be careful of those people who only try to butter you up because they might be trying to throw you on the grill. Okay, that's very true. We have to be careful of these people. These religious posers here begin their questioning like this after trying to butter Christ up with their flattering tongue. Verse 22. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Yeah, so should the Jews pay taxes to Rome. Another way that you might interpret this question would be to say it like this, is Caesar greater than the law? Because if he said yes, then well, how could he possibly be the Jewish Messiah, right? I mean, this would be idolatry. But if he said no, then he could be arrested for not paying taxes to Rome. And of course, that'd be unlawful. That would be treason. So they got him. They finally pinned him, except they didn't. Verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? Now, I really like Matthew's account here. That's my personal favorite response from Christ 
in this passage, Matthew records Jesus as saying this, why do you test me, you hypocrites? <laughs> Ow. That's Matthew twenty-two eighteen. Man, you don't hear many Christians talk like that today, do you? No, we're, we're more careful with our words than that. I mean, do you think it's because we've allowed our culture to influence how we speak? Maybe we're afraid. I don't know. It could be. I mean, is what Jesus just said hate speech? Some in our culture might, might consider that hate speech. So believers, are we really afraid to speak like Jesus? Are we really ashamed to talk like Christ did? Do we think that what Christ said is somehow a sin? <laughs> of course it's not. Look, believer, we don't have to be vulgar. Okay. In fact, we should not be vulgar. We don't even have to be rude. We should not be rude, right? But neither should we be vague or unnecessarily flattering. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Okay, we don't have to be like that. Jesus never cowered to the mob. He always called a spade a spade every single time, right? So maybe that's our problem, possibly. Maybe Christians today, we just, we want the good life. We want to be left alone. We don't want any trouble rather than pursuing the faithful life that Christ led, right? That obviously led to the cross. So will it for you and I, if we choose the faithful life, then that will lead us necessarily to take up our cross every day and die on that cross. First Corinthians 15, 31. But guys, too many of us, too many claim the name of Christ today, but never consider picking up our cross and following Christ. It's hard because we're afraid of persecution. We're afraid of losing the good life. We're afraid of losing our comfort. If you're in that camp, then I would just warn you to be very careful. And I would even take it a step further and, and call you to repentance. Uh, we all struggle with this. I'm, I'm not any different. We all struggle with wanting to be comfortable, with wanting the good life, not wanting to do the hard thing, avoiding the faithful life because it's going to cause me to die. We can't be that. Not if we're truly going to follow Christ. We have to reject the culture, reject the world take up our cross and follow Christ and not be afraid or ashamed to ever do that. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15 verses 33 and 34. It says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. That's what he said. Therefore, those who claim to know God, who profess the name of Christ, but actually do not follow him are what? Hypocrites. Just like Jesus said, I don't want to be in that camp, right? I would rather awake to righteousness and follow Christ in faithfulness. Verse 24, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. One of the things that we see here in verse 24 is the poverty of Christ, right? Apparently, he didn't even have a denarius, did he? A denarius is a coin. It's worth about a day's wage, but one had to be shown him. He didn't have one. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. How amazing is that? But what a brilliant example here that Christ gives for us. 
He said, whose image and inscription is on that denarius? Well, obviously it was Caesar's, right? Exactly. Verse 25. And he said to them, render therefore or pay therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Okay, that are God. So Christ is teaching us at least a couple of things here. The first thing is that following Christ does not exempt us from our responsibilities in this world. Okay, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. That's John 17, 16. Therefore, as believers, we are in fact subject to the laws of the land, provided that they do not run contrary to the word of God. Okay, Acts chapter 5, verse 29 says, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. Exactly. However, if taxes are something that's required by Caesar, by the government, then taxes are to be paid. But it's interesting to me that Christ didn't stop there, did he? No, he also said, render to God the things that are God's. And I love that. So what are those things? What are the things that we're to render to God? What a great question. This is the second thing that we're learning here from this passage. Caesar's image was on the coin. Whose image is on us? God's. God's image is on us. You and I are made in the Imago Dei, Genesis 1.26, the image of God. I love that. Therefore, render to Caesar his tax money, but we're to render God our life, all of it, our entire person, our self, our being, all of who we are belongs to God. Christ taught one of the scribes in, in this story, as you read it in Mark chapter 12, he taught one of the scribes that we're to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. In other words, everything. That's all of it, okay? As image bearers of God, we owe God all of it, everything. Never forget that. So let's not steal from God by holding something back for ourselves. That's what that's akin to. When I hold something back for myself, I'm taking from my creator. I don't want to do that, okay? So it's up to each of us to just really get honest before God and figure out if there is, in fact, any part of my life that I'm holding back from him. Verse 26, but they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. That's right. Psalm 31, verse 18 says, let the lying lips be put to silence which speak insolent, meaning arrogant things, proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. So the Pharisees and Herodians here were embarrassed to the point of silence. They had questioned the authority of Christ. They had questioned the integrity of Christ. And now they were left only to marvel in complete silence. Man. Psalm 105.5 says, remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders, his judgments of his mouth. Amen. That's right. These guys were left only to marvel at the Christ they were questioning. But now the Sadducees decided they wanted to somehow uh, get wise before Christ. I don't know what they were thinking because they ask another ignorant question. And here it is. They're trying to confront Christ regarding his theology. 
You know, I guess if the political angle doesn't work, maybe the religious angle will. I don't, I don't know what they were thinking, but how soon we forget the marvelous works of Christ. They just saw it. How soon we forget the wonders and the judgments of his mouth. They just heard it. But they continue to pridefully put themselves in a position to question Christ. But it won't be long and the Sadducees are going to find themselves right alongside the Pharisees, daring not to question him anymore. And the lesson I want to learn from that is hopefully I can train my own heart in the same way. I need to learn how to train my own heart to not question Christ anymore. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But verse 27, then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him, right, so the theological question here is in regard to the resurrection. Again, the Sadducees denied it. They didn't believe in it. So they tried to trap Christ in here in his own words by twisting some scripture. Again, this is nothing new, right? The enemy will twist scripture. This goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? Verse 28, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. So the scripture that they pull out and that they're referencing here is from Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. This was what came to be known as the Jewish Leverite marriage. Okay, that's not in any way uh, related to Levi or the priests. It's, it's actually a Latin word, lever. It's, it means husband's brother. And so this is the Leverite marriage that they're referring to. But what they do is they take it to a very illogical conclusion here. I mean, if you think about it, could this scenario happen that they list? I mean, I guess it might. But is it likely? No, it's not likely at all. But here it is. Here's the question starting in verse 29. We'll read through verse 33. Now, there were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner, the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, you know Jesus, like if that's a thing, whose wife does she become? I kind of embellish that. For all seven had her as a wife. Yeah, so again, Matthew and Mark give us a very great response from Christ here. Jesus responds to the hypocrites like this. He says, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. That's Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine 29 and Mark 12, 24. In other words, you guys are ignorant. There's a difference between being ignorant and stupid, right? Ignorant means you don't know. There was a reason why they didn't know. They didn't read the scriptures, but I love the bluntness of Christ. Again, he's never rude, but he is very, very direct. Because those people who choose to remain ignorant in the scriptures, guys, they're never going to know the power of God. They're never going to have any hope of eternal life if you choose to remain ignorant of the scriptures, right? And so what's going to end up happening is you're going to begin to fill your self-righteous head with questions like this. This question is very atheistic. It's very humanistic. It might sound wise to those people who don't have any faith, to those who choose to become and stay willfully ignorant. But in reality, this question is void of any understanding whatsoever. 
because they should have known that the resurrection is not just a New Testament teaching. It's taught all throughout the Old Testament as well. And Christ is going to point that out. Had these guys trusted in the scriptures instead of twisting the scriptures, then they would have known all of that already. But these guys remained willfully ignorant and had no hope of eternal life. But what a narrow and narcissistic view or worldview that is. Think about that. How sad to just think that this is it. I'm going to just live for a few years, however long that is, and then just stop existing. That's a very narrow view of reality. Paul even said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. He said, if in this life only we believers have hope in Christ, then we are of all men the most pitiable. (laughs) So true. That's so true. I mean, if this is it, y'all, and we're out here pretending like, you know, there's a resurrection, then we're the most to be pitied. Oh, but Christ is not dead. He is risen, right? Therefore, our hope is eternal, according to Titus chapter 3, verse 7. And this is the teaching from cover to cover in the word of God. Verse 34, Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Right, so marriage is for today. Marriage is for this age. Oh, but there's another age coming, isn't there? This place and this time that you and I are in right now, that's not all there is. And so in the age to come, relationship dynamics are going to be different, right? Verse 35, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. So again, Christ is teaching us a couple of things here. The first thing is that the resurrection of the dead is real. That is a very real thing. In fact, everyone will be resurrected from the dead. Lost, saved, it doesn't matter. Everyone's going to be resurrected. That's Acts 24, 15. But in this case, specifically, Christ is talking about being raised to eternal life. So he's talking about the saved. He's talking about salvation here. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing is that Christ Uh, is telling us that we have to be counted worthy in order to attain this. In order to attain the age to come, you must be counted worthy. How does that happen? That's what I want to know. How can I be counted worthy to attain eternal life in that age? Now, be careful here, because Jesus did not say that we are to be worthy. He did not say that we are to become worthy somehow. No. Not at all. He's talking about imputed worthiness. He's talking about imputed righteousness. Okay, so this is a righteousness or a worthiness that has been deemed or counted toward us by another. Listen to how Paul lays this out in Romans chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. He says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies. I want to read that first sentence again. This is the crux of our Christian faith. If you don't know anything else about the Christian faith, please know this. But to him who does not work, salvation does not depend on me, right? To him who does not work, but believes, believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. This is given to us. 
isn't it? Blessed are those who, uh, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Praise the Lord. Christ was even quoting from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2 there. So Christ takes our sin, gives us his righteousness based on our faith. It's not ever something we can work for. We are counted worthy of eternal life by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Verse 36, nor can they die anymore for they're equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Yeah, so here's another indication that Christ is in fact talking about believers here. Okay, because those who trust in Christ, the reality is you're only going to die once. You're going to die a physical death. And then that's it in this age. Okay, however, those who reject Christ in this life will have to suffer death twice. The physical death in this life, and then of course, an eternal and spiritual death after the final judgment in the next life. That's Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. But this idea about angels, don't get hung up on that either. Okay, let's stay within the context of the passage. The idea of believers being, quote, equal to the angels here is in reference to the fact that we will be eternal. Okay, and never die again. That's what he's talking about. Verse 37. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Exactly. Again, resurrection is not exclusively a New Testament idea. It's always been the case. So Christ takes these guys all the way back to his conversation that he had with Moses back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where he said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Present tense, like I am currently their God. You see, God has created each and every one of us to be eternal. Life goes on after the grave. Okay, this life is not all there is. There is an afterlife in both heaven and hell. Hell, a place that was created for the devil and his angels, but also a place where those who reject Christ in this life will spend their eternity. But Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were actually alive in Christ in real time, even though they had died, right? So we see life go on beyond the grave. And, and again, and with New Testament revelation, we see this again in Moses. We see it with Elijah. As Peter, James, and John witnessed firsthand Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, verse 30. So clear indicators in both the Old and New Testament that Life is eternal. Verse 38, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Right. That is all believers. Okay. Again, he's talking about the living. Notice the separation here. God is the God of the living. He is the God of those who have been made alive in Christ. First Corinthians 15, 22. And therefore those who reject Christ in this life well, they're going to be eternally separated from him in the age to come. Oh, yeah, they're still going to exist eternally, but in a godless place called hell. Think of it like this. They will be eternally alive, but ever dying. What a horrible thought. Verse 39. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. 
Yeah, again, even the most educated, even the most meticulous among the doubters here had absolutely no rebuttal to the truth of Christ. Teacher, you've spoken well. Of course he did. As we talked last week, Christ spoke with ultimate and absolute authority. Yeah, he's going to speak well. And here we see that the truth of God also stands eternally. So every question that dares to confront the truth of Christ will be utterly silenced. Hey, teacher, you've spoken so well that I must sit down and be quiet. That's how well Christ had spoken. I wonder how well I can hear Christ speak. Can I hear that? Do my questions drown that out? Do I heed the judgments of his mouth? You know, do I waste time asking gotcha questions or do I spend my time getting to know Christ? God, why did this happen? Why does this have to happen to me? Why this? Why that? Get to know your Savior. We can spend less time questioning him and more time getting to know him. Now, there's no doubt. uh, I have my own questions. We all do. And we're going to get to that here in a minute. But there's also many times that I've not spoken well. That's never the case with Christ. And that's the point. When Christ speaks, he always speaks well. When Christ speaks, it's always well-timed. It's always well-placed and well-intentioned. And therefore, what I've got to do is be smart enough to humble myself and listen. I have to tune my ear to what Christ is saying rather than babbling on with my endless and redundant questions. Because if I do humble myself before Christ, if I am smart enough to listen when he speaks well, which is every time he speaks, then it will ultimately be well with my soul. Verse 40. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. Again, yeah, lesson learned here. They dared not question him anymore. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 28 says, even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he's considered perceptive. <laughs> That's Proverbs seventeen twenty-eight. You might be more familiar with the modern day saying that, that says, it's better to be silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Right? So how often do I still question Christ? Even after having the blessing of living on this side of the cross, and this is the point that I want to make. We live on this side of the cross. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ is coming again. So why do I still question. I mean, does the cross of Christ not in fact answer all of my questions? Maybe it should. Listen to what Corson said. I like his thoughts here. He says, you who shrug your shoulders in apathy, look at the shoulder, look at his shoulder and see it ripped apart by the flagellum and bearing a cross that should have been yours. You who shake your fist because things aren't happening in the way that you think they should, see his hand, not clenched, but open, pierced by a nail. You who have walked away from the Lord in anger or drifted away in busyness, look at Christ's feet and see them pinned to a beam of wood, bleeding for you. Wow, great thought. How can I look at the cross of Christ and ever question him again? 
I mean, it's better for me to remain silent and marvel at his wondrous works and the judgments of his mouth. Now, in verses 41 and 40 through 44, Christ goes from being the one questioned to now being the questioner. And Matthew tells us that Christ addressed the question to the Pharisees. And both Matthew and Mark tell us that he had also addressed the question of who's or what is the greatest commandment. Some of you will remember that from reading in the other Gospels. Or what's the greatest commandment in the law? And so Christ addressed that with his crowd here before he gets to the question in Luke. But it is worth noting that Jesus answered that question like this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's how he answered the question of what's the greatest commandment. But if you go back and do your comparison study in Matthew and in Mark, you'll find out that after Christ responded there, something very interesting happened. Okay? He answered the, the folks in regard to the great commandment. And then a scribe says this. This is Mark chapter 12, verses 32 and 33, if you'd like to look into it. A scribe says, basically, you know, you're right, Jesus. You have spoken the truth. There is one God, and I need to love him with all my heart. I need to love him with all of my understanding, with all of my soul and with all of my strength. And I need to love the, my neighbor as myself. And all of that means more than burnt offerings. All of that means more than sacrifices. And then Jesus said something incredible to this scribe. He said, you are not far from the kingdom. What? What did he miss? What did the scribe miss? Why was he still far from the kingdom? Let me run through the list again. Jesus said, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Different word. All of my understanding, yes, but also with all of my feelings, emotions, and desire. That's the word that Jesus used. Okay? Then he said, love the Lord with all your soul, with all your strength. Now maybe we can start to see the difference. The reason that Jesus told this scribe that you're not far from the kingdom is because the scribe was still lacking the most critical element of all, faith. He lacked faith. The scribe said, I'm going to love the Lord with what I understand. You know, just that part. I'm just going to love him with all of those things I understand about the Lord. But Jesus said, no, love the Lord with all of your mind, all of it, all of your desire, all of your emotion, all of who you are, right? He lacked faith. So let me say it this way. I'm to love Christ with what I know about him, yes, but with a desire to know more. And faith is that link in the chain that's going to connect what I know about Christ to how I trust Christ for the things I don't know. It's faith. Faith is what connects my heart to my head. And now things become spiritual. It's no longer just intellectual anymore. So in reality, the scribe, he did not, in fact, love the Lord with all of his heart or all of his soul or all of his strength because he was only trusting in his own understanding of those things. That is not faith. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. 
According to Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for. There's your desire and the evidence of things not seen. So faith stretches our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength way, way past what we merely understand. Okay? Way past that. Guys, mental ascent will only take you so far. That's what the scribe had. He had mental ascent, and it only took him so far. But it's faith that will bring us into the kingdom. Verse 41. And he said to them, how can they say that, uh, or he, meaning Jesus, said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? So he's speaking to the Pharisees here. We see that in Matthew twenty-two forty-one, Verse 42 and 43. Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So Christ now is quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1, and he takes the Pharisees again back to the scriptures. That's critical. And here's his question to them. Verse 44. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Well, Matthew tells us that nobody was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. That's Matthew twenty-two forty-six. So think about it. In a, in a matter of minutes, Christ was able to silence the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, and he used their own ignorance of the scriptures to do it. They should have known. They had him. They could have read him. They didn't. But Christ uses something else very interesting here to make his point. Of course, he uses their own ignorance of the scriptures to make his point, but he also uses his incarnation. Did you see that? How so? Well, Christ is claiming his deity by way of his incarnation. Christ is saying, you are looking at David's Lord and David's son. That's me. I'm here. That's what he's saying. The word was with God and the word was God, John said in John 1.1. When? In the beginning. That's when he was with them. And he is David's son because Jesus, of course, is God in the flesh. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. And so Christ is both the root and the offspring of David, Revelation 22.16, meaning that Christ was before David. In his eternal divinity, yet he was after David in his incarnated deity. He eternally existed, yet he was brought forth through a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. How? In the line of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. So guys, what's going on here? I'll tell you. Christ is telling them, I am the answer to my own question. It's me. I'm him. I'm the Messiah. And he's quoting their Old Testament scriptures as well to show him. But here again, he silenced his detractors with his authority. When you look back through this chapter, you're going to see that all three areas of attack by his questioners, all of them, his authority, his integrity, his theology, they're all substantiated by the word of God, the scriptures. Christ always took them back to the word of God every time. So here's the good news for you and I. As believers, we should take heart in that because we have the same word, don't we? We have the same word. 
I love how Mark ends this section in his account. In Mark chapter 12, verse 37, he says, and the common people heard him gladly. That's a great way to tie a bow on this section of scripture. And the common people heard him gladly. That's right, because all of those who had not wrapped themselves up in their own authority, all those who didn't themselves lack integrity or had made up their own brand of theology, well, those people gladly heard the word of Christ. Man, it's so hard to hear Christ when we're so full of ourselves, isn't it? Nearly impossible. But authority, integrity, theology, they were all brought into question here by those who were trying to get rid of Christ. Of course, his authority is absolute. Christ's integrity is impeccable. And his theology is inerrant. And so I need to empty myself that I might fill myself with Christ. Right? That would be my goal. So that I can hear him and so that I can live for him in a day-to-day manner. But I'll close with this. Because I think we're learning a tactic here from the enemy as well. Of course, we want to learn from this passage that, yeah, I I need to um, empty myself of me so that I might be filled with his spirit and his power and his wisdom, etc. Absolutely. But we see an important tactic of the enemy of God. And this, this is it. This is what they're doing. Those who deny Christ will necessarily, like every time, try to come in and usurp God's authority. That's the first thing they'll do. The second thing they're going to do is try to ruin our integrity. And the third thing that they'll do is try to taint our theology. It starts with authority. If I can somehow usurp the authority of Christ, then now my integrity is no longer quite as important. And now my theology can be just about anything that I want it to. So that's the process that the enemy is using to attack Christ. Don't think he won't use it on you and on me. And so as Christ's representative to the world, we are his church. We are the called out ones. Guys, we cannot let that happen. We cannot ever compromise the authority of Christ in our church or in our life. We cannot ever compromise our integrity or our theology in any way. We have to hold fast to the truth of God's word. We're a Bible church. We've said that from the beginning. That's our hope. That's our goal is to remain that way. Because the very moment, and I mean this, the very moment that we decide that God's word is no longer the complete authority over everything that we believe and everything that we practice, then that's the very moment we're going to lose our integrity and also the very moment that we're going to lose our theology. We'll begin to fall for anything at that point. Guys, it's happening everywhere. Church after church has gotten away from the authority of God. They no longer believe the Bible to be inerrant. And so now their integrity is compromised. And now their theology is all over the place. It's terrible. They'll believe anything. And we've seen that this, this is not new. Okay, this has always been the case. We can never stray from the word of God. The Pharisees said, oh, the oral law and the written law, they're the same. That's how come they become legalistic and started putting laws where God did not put them. 
The Sadducees said, oh, all of it's inerrant. We're just going to make up whatever we want. We don't even believe in the resurrection anymore. We don't believe in the supernatural, the afterlife, whatever. So you see how when you remove Christ as the head, you remove him from the authority of your life and the authority of your church, everything else gets squirrely. All of it. Your integrity's gone. Your theology's gone. It's all gone. Because Christ is no longer king. Christ must remain the authority of my heart, the authority of our church, in order for me to have any hope of having any integrity or having good theology. When Christ is the authority, the rest of that falls into place. So would you guys pray with me? Lord, please don't let community church ever fall into that trap where Christ is no longer the full and final authority. Lord, may we never lose our integrity and Lord, may we never lose our theology. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the challenge that you've given to us today. We thank you for giving us a peek into how the enemy works. We see in how they questioned you, Lord, and we know that we're not above that kind of questioning in our own life. There will be those who come into our life telling us that Christ is not king, that the Bible does not have authority. They will try to cause us to lose our integrity. They'll give us bad theology. Please protect us, Lord. Help us to always take those folks back to the scriptures. Lord, may we not be ignorant of those scriptures like they were. We know that you called them out for that. Had they read the scriptures, had they known the scriptures, then they would have known the truth. But they didn't care about your word. They neglected your word and they got off the rails. Please keep us on track, Lord. Keep us firmly rooted and grounded in the word of God. May we never stray from that. Thank you for giving us an opportunity, Lord, to be salt and light in this community, to take the gospel to our friends and our neighbors, to have that kind of responsibility as your church, the called out ones in this community. Thank you for giving us that responsibility. Please empower us to do that well. Help us to not be afraid or ashamed. Help us to not be rude, but help us to learn how to be direct, to speak truth into our culture, to do it the way you did it, in a way that's convicting and understandable so that they would repent and turn to Christ by faith. We love you, Lord, and we thank you again for this privilege of being your children. It's my prayer that if someone is hearing this message and does not have a relationship with you, that they would turn from their sin even now, believe in Jesus Christ by faith, that he is the Son of God who laid down his life on a cross for their sin and took it up again in the miracle of the resurrection so that they could have that hope of eternal life. Lord, you've taught us very clearly today that life extends beyond the grave, believers exist eternally with you and never die again. Those who reject Christ, they have to die twice. A spiritual death, physical death, that's also eternal. So Lord, I pray that we would heed the word of scripture and run to to Christ. Help us to run to Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.